go. If we do anything right here, it's the do. We do it right. Uh, turn your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8. Is that on there, Roger? It's, we're only going to be in Romans 8 all day. So, so if you can find that, you're, you're all set. One. Eighteen oh one, a good year. There is no Romans eighteen. Come on. One. I'm going to talk about patience and endurance. No, yeah, I know, I know. You need it. I, I should probably change up the whole. I. I uh, it'll be in here somewhere. Uh, it will be. <laughs> let's pray for it anyway. Yeah, Let's start with prayer. Let's thank God for our time with Him and His Word. Always being ready to uh, just absorb His wisdom and knowledge with humility. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy forever. You are perfect and full of majesty so beyond us that it's impossible for us to understand. Yet, you have become a man. You have condescended to become one of us and die for us. And by doing so, you have, for those who have believed upon you, called us to yourself. And that calling has put us in a place, you have put us in a place of perfect righteousness and justice. We are justified before you completely and forever. And you have defeated our enemies. You have removed our sin. You have blessed us, elected us, adopted us. We are your children forever. Therefore, Father, we stand in a position that we can hardly comprehend, and yet it is all ours. This place that is before you, that is your eternal life in your Son, your children, your priests, and that forever. We have eternal life, we have a destiny with you, and even though in these bodies we groan, we know, Father, that we will be ultimately redeemed and be with you forever in resurrection. So, and Father... Until that time you have given us in in this position a life, and that life is above and beyond anything that any human could have ever imagined. And we struggle to live it, we struggle to understand it. But rightly so, it is so above us. And yet you have called us to see it, and through your word and through your spirit we can. And so as we turn to your word, and we'll be ultimately challenged with this life, we Pray, Father, that you will um, uh, motivate us and push us to speak with you and pray with you continually to not try and go through this alone, but to go through it with you, to grow in grace and knowledge, our struggles, our groping, our attempts to understand, our failures, which we will confess to you. Um, We ask, Father, that you remind us through your spirit to pray to you to speak with you openly. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Um, and so we're uh, going to look today at Romans 8, 1 through uh, 17. And it is an amazing section in the Word of God. It is one of my favorites. Uh, I <clears throat> had put it in my message in terms of uh, the fact that we we have to be um, reminded to go to God continually because this life, the, the eternal life that we've been given can slip away from us. And what I mean from that is not that we lose it, but we lose our, our sight of it. Uh, and, and it can happen any day, and it can, from that, whatever day it happens, it can stay out of your purview for a while. Uh, this happens to a lot of believers, that they get caught up in life, uh, and, they, and, and then everything becomes about, what I mean by life is the details of life. You know, what I got to do at home, what I got to do at work, what I got to do with the family, what I got to do, what I, where I got to go. Uh, and we've all got to take care of these things. And we think that that's what life is. And it's not. It's not remotely. Uh, some have thought, well, you know, I'm going to rid myself from that life. And then I'll find how to live eternal life. And so this was a great idea. So they thought. And this was where monks came from. You know. uh, or those that maybe not go to a monastery or a convent, but, you know, just go out into the wilderness and be alone. Uh, the problem with that, I, when we try to solve certain problems our own way, we end up creating problems in other areas. It's kind of like that, you know, the, the dam is leaking, so you put your finger in one hole, and then it starts spraying out the other, and then you run out of fingers, and you haven't solved the problem. The, we're not to be out of this world, we're not of this world, but we're in it, and we're to remain in it. I mean, this, we can't get out of it, but, you know, the attempts to try and create our own plan or our own environment. I mean, you are where you are, and it's not like make the best of it either. It's overcome it, right? That, that's the command. That is the promise to overcome, not make the best of and we've got to learn how to do that. And so that's why I, I entitled this, Don't Try This Alone. When, I said, when, I, when it came to my mind, I was like, well, don't try this at home. you know. But we're, we're talking about this life in consistent. Now, right? We can't be, not constant prayer, but consistent prayer. Consistent communication with our Father. Uh, and of two types. The flare prayer, which you have multiple times a day. Flare prayer from anywhere. I really like that. Uh, and the the in your inner room planned prayer time. And if you neglect it one day, all right. Don't neglect it the next. And don't think that I have to feel like it or uh, you know I have to have a good day to do it. it uh, you know the the reason we can pray to God is because of the position that He's given us through Christ Jesus. We are imputed with righteousness and we are justified. And that means that the door is always open. Always. Even if we, if we just sinned terribly a minute ago, you can pray to God a minute later 
I'd go to him with confession. But even, even as Jesus taught us to pray, we don't even really, as he taught us, we don't get to confession until we say, Father in heaven, you are holy. You might feel the need to confess. Go, go ahead. You know, He didn't say we had to stick to that order. But I think the order is important. And to make sure we understand before we talk to him who he is and who we are and how, how amazing is the grace of God that we can even talk to him. But then take full advantage of it. And, so, and we pray, as I've been saying, there's so many kinds of prayer, and I haven't gotten remotely to this yet, but there's so many kinds of prayer uh, in thanksgiving and just plain adoration, just time with him in silence is a kind of prayer. Uh, there's intercession for others. There's seeking your own needs. Uh, there's uh, the quest for wisdom, which is in James chapter 1. Um, there is the, the, the there's, you know, uh, all kinds of things you can ask him for that are within the will of his word. And all we, and, and we, we think that prayer is a way for God to give us what we want. And it turns out that it's not. Just like with everything he does, it's not exactly what we think it is. You know, as God says it's in Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. Prayer is a means of God uses to give us what he wants, not what we want. He's molding us. He's changing us. Right? It's, it's just like you trying to train your children. <laughs> the latest thing I've been saying to Maggie is, your mom and I are not your servant. We're not your servants. And it's something I'm trying to instill in her. She thinks we're her servants. Go get me this. Because, right, when they're little, little, they can't get themselves anything. But now that they're big enough, they can, they, you can go get that. Nope, you have to go get it. Uh, 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 no, I'm not the servant here. You know, and, and it's something, so how do you teach that to a five-year-old? You sit him down and go through the, this is an adult and this is it. The other day I was trying, I started, I caught myself trying to teach her about the concept of money. Because it's another thing. She has a piggy bank with like, you know, a few quarters in it. And she think I say, Maggie, you can't, if we're out at a store or somewhere or whatever, I say, Maggie, you can't, you can't just have that. It costs money. And she always says, I have money. Right? And technically, she's right. And she, we could go home and get it and spend it. But it's, you know, how do you, how do you, I, there is no way that, that a, a five-year-old, or even for some years, can understand the concept of money, you know, how it works. We can't understand the concept of a bunch of things that God does. And he is. So how does he teach us? And he has multiple ways, right? Ways that come from the word most, you know, from, from the word of God. But in our own lives, as God molds us, right? He's the potter, we're the clay. He molds us and in ways pushes us. And he knows how to make a want over here and a desire over here by which you're going to come to him. And the whole while he's teaching you something that you don't even know he's doing. Right. We, we think we're after this particular thing, but really God is leading us to see something else. And so prayer is a part of this, to show us what he wants for us. 
So as we mature spiritually in prayer, we will find that prayer was never a means of getting from God what we wanted. And as we mature, all those things that we thought we wanted in the past turn out to be meaningless. And now we want something better. And in terms of God, what God would call better. We, those are the things that we want now. Uh, and God continues to use that method to give us what he wants, not what we want. And so uh, I, I'm going to continue on this aspect of prayer because I think it's the most neglected aspect of it, discovering God. I think everybody understands about prayer. God, I need this. I want this. I want you to fix this. I want you to get rid of this. I want you to add this. In other words, there are petitions in which we're asking God for the stuff that we want. I think everybody understands that pretty easily. What we have to understand about those things is, you know, uh, what ones are in his will and what ones aren't and why. And and that, that comes with maturity as well. But the discovery of God and the discovery of his truth is an incredibly important impact or, or part of prayer. And it impacts us very practically you know, as we're seeking him. So we saw yesterday in Second Chronicles that God said to Israel, when you pray to me, you seek me. You seek me and I will hear you when you repent from your evil ways. And um, in Jeremiah 29 where he says, you'll seek for me with all your heart, you'll find me. But right, the sentence immediately before that is that you'll pray to me and that you'll seek me and you'll find me. Fast forward to Jesus who gives us the Lord's Prayer and then he says, ask, seek, and knock. Seek me and keep seeking me. And in essence, everything we pray for is going to come down to that. You know, when God doesn't give us something or God takes away something and we ask him to give it back. When Paul prays to God, take the thorn out of my flesh, whatever the thorn is. Paul, God said no, and Paul learned more about God. See, in that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I have learned that when I'm weak, I'm strong. Right? So the, the answer to his prayer, which was, no, I'm not taking the thorn from you, is that he would find something about God and then find something about himself, too. Paul found he was weaker than he thought he was. And when he found that out and depended upon God, he found out how strong he could be. So when we're, if we don't pray and go to God for the answers, for the, uh, you know, the, the solutions, and continually, in, in everything that we need, understanding, wisdom, power, knowledge, all of it, what we essentially do is go into our own heads and try and figure it out on our own. And uh, we should never do that. Because, which, and, and, you know, if you have the Word of God in you, the solution to something might be immediately on your fingertips. And you don't really need, I mean, I would say thank God for that. You know, that, that is a form of prayer, a very important form of prayer. But you might not need to go to God to say, hey, what do I do in this situation? Or help me change my heart in this situation or whatever. Uh, and, but so many times when we're just in our own heads trying to figure stuff out, that we're, we start hearing from the flesh as well. 
In other words, what's wrong with us is in these bodies, this sin nature. And we can hear conclusions from one or the other, from the Father or from the sin nature. You know, which one would you want to get solutions from? And sometimes we we go to others for advice. Is that godly advice? Uh, How would we know? Well, we should probably ask ourselves, why didn't we go to God first before we went to them? It doesn't mean that you can't go to God, I mean to people for advice, but I would suggest going to God first. So look at Romans 8.1. It's going to clarify all this for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So beautiful how this starts. Romans chapter 8. It's an amazing chapter. Uh, why is this stated? Well, right prior to this is Paul saying in verse 24 of chapter 7, if you skip back a few verses, wretched man that I am. All right, what does he say? Who will save me from the body of this death? Death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. So then the on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. And you see, he Paul says here, even though he's writing a book of the Bible, that he still has his flesh to contend with, and the, his flesh chooses the law of sin every time. You see how it says it? He says it plainly. My flesh will choose the law of sin every time. But my mind desires, and hopefully it desires this, and Paul it did, desires the law of God. Hence, as Paul would write in Galatians, the flesh wars with the spirit and the spirit with the flesh. So, what are we, so how are we going to win this war that is raging within ourselves? And that's what Paul's going to teach us in chapter 8. So, first things first. In verses 1 through 4, our main focus is on the law. So, why does he go from the, the law of God in chapter 7 and the law of sin? Why does he go to the Mosaic law? Well, let's read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, of, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the Mosaic law. For what the law, Mosaic law, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. When he condemns sin in the flesh, that's in Jesus' flesh. In order that the requirement of the law, which is perfect righteousness, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul here is speaking of our moment-by-moment performance, whether we're walking by the Spirit or not, whether we're sinning or we're doing righteous things. Uh, then the requirement of the law would be fulfilled one moment, not fulfilled another. When you're sinning, it's not fulfilled. When you're doing righteous things, it is fulfilled. And that would mean that, you know, uh, it's not fulfilled in us. But it is fulfilled in us. He just said it. Why is it fulfilled? Through the flesh of Christ, he condemned sin. Sin was judged in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in verse 4, what we have is not what we are moment to moment, but who we are and who we have made to be as new creatures in Christ. We are those who walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. That's what God has made us to be. New creatures in Christ. That's what, this is what we're designed for. He's not saying here that we won't sin. In fact, he's going to, make, he's going to continue to make an issue of that. So, but first things first. The Mosaic Law has been fulfilled by Christ. Okay, not abolished, fulfilled. And now the requirement of the law, which is righteousness, is fulfilled in us. Why have we fulfilled it? Because we become righteous? No. Have we earned righteousness? No. We have been given righteousness. Imputed. We have been made. First, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Through the cross of Christ, we have been made righteous. We've been given his righteousness. So we have been made righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. So what is this? This is a standing, a place. It's a, it's a position. It's a standing before God. God looks at you and says, you are justified before me. Romans 5, we are justified forever. Okay, so wretched man that I am, still am, but there's no condemnation for me because Christ fulfilled the law for me and God made me righteous and I'm justified in his sight. All right? So I'm still, though, a wretched man. So the story continues. We are righteous by imputation due to the work of Christ on the cross, and so we're justified. Now, what Paul is going to get to when he finally gets to, well, the end of this paragraph, it's really like two paragraphs, to verse 15, is that we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, so through all of what's going to be explained here, we are to be always crying out. This word for crying out, it means it inflects upon prayer that we are as sons and daughters of God as we're going through this incredible gifted life in the midst of a world that is fallen and condemned in a body that is fallen and condemned that wants us to sin. If we try and live this incredible life without talking to the father as his children, right? it's like a young child saying, I know you have father, you have all wisdom and you can teach me skills and you can teach me about life and you can teach me, you can give me an education on, on how, to, how to be successful. But you know what? I'm going to try it on my own. And it will not work. Who are you going to learn from? All of us have to learn. So, but, so we can say, well, look, I'm going to learn from the Word of God and I'm not going to talk to God about this at all. And God is saying, well, you have the instruction manual. And, and wouldn't you want to learn from the one who knows how? The one who can model this. You know, the one who personally says, I seek you to worship me. Like Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. How are you going to worship him by, by reading the words and not actually turning to him and, 
adoring him and thanking him and speaking to him and asking him. And God has designed prayer this way. I mean, if prayer weren't important, he'd tell us. But he tells us it's incredibly important. Paul tells us it's incredibly important. They all do. Why would God include a book of Psalms? The enormous book, 150 Psalms, the majority of which are prayers. So, our Father in heaven, this is our position. It's Romans 8, 1 through 4. When I say, my Father, why is he my Father? Jesus Christ has justified me. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law by dying. And I am now under a different law. In our new standing before God, we are under a law, and I I just have to correct myself there. I've always said a different law, but it's misleading to call it a different law because we might think that it has nothing to do with the Mosaic law, and that's not true. In our new standing before God, we're under a law of a different title. As I like to say to this question when people say, well, we're not under the Mosaic law, we have nothing to do with it, I always like to say adultery is still a sin in our dispensation. Ten Commandments, yeah, you're still under them. (laughs) You can't lie now, you're right, you can't covet, those are all things that you can't do. Uh, The morals and the ethics of the law of Moses are still in effect in our law. And in fact, they've been intensified and exalted, as Jesus clearly taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus would said three times in that sermon, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even look at a woman to lust for her. So in other words, he said, be so loyal to your wife that you're not even going to look. Never mind, I would say, well, you know, I've been a good husband. I've not cheated on you. Well, how many women have you looked at and lusted for? Uh, none of your business, right? That's what all husbands would say. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> you know, Jesus, even though none of us are perfect at this, he still took it there. To heaven was perfect loyalty to your wife. He said, you've heard it said, don't lie. And, and uh, no, it's not don't lie, but um, when he said, don't take any vows, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What he meant by that is never lie. See, vows are promises that you won't lie. Jesus said, you can't lie at all anymore. You're like, come on, man, I'm human. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm taking the Mosaic law and I've brought it to a heavenly realm. And in that Sermon on the Mount, he says, be perfect like your Father in Heaven is perfect. So, not only only do we have the ethics and morals of the Law of Moses, they've been exalted to Heaven itself. And that said, our Law has some major differences, however, with the Mosaic Law. And the one main difference is the Holy Spirit. God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, is within us to guide us, to empower us, to lead us, and to teach us. And and when we decide to follow the law of Christ, he is in us to make it happen. And so what we have is the law of the spirit of life is first the power to fulfill our law. It's the spirit of life. That is our law. Our law is of this Romans 8, 2, 
the law of the spirit of life. And then it's in Christ Jesus. This law is only over all people who are in Christ Jesus, which is all believers. So our position in him sets us under this law. And this is the law of the kingdom of God. So the second and third petition in uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are under this law. <clears throat> so in the, as he says in Romans 8, uh, 3, he says, and read it again with me, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. So what did you have in the Old Testament if you were going to fulfill the Mosaic law? What did you have as, you know, your tool? And it was the flesh. Well, no wonder nobody could keep it. We're all lawbreakers, right? So nothing was given with the Mosaic Law to aid in its fulfillment. This is a, a, a wonderful truth to understand. God gave Israel the law, but he didn't give them anything to help them keep it. What they had was their choices and their faith. And they followed the law as best that they could. But since everybody failed it, you had to ultimately bring an animal sacrifice to cover your sin. But now we have this law, which is, has some similarities. One great difference, the Holy Spirit. And in our law, which is the law of the kingdom of heaven, we have the Holy Spirit. And so that is a great difference. We are called to fulfill our law. In Galatians 6, it's called the law of Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit within us to empower us to do it. We say, well, why doesn't everybody fulfill it? Why do we commit any sins at all since we have the Holy Spirit within to empower us? And it's because we don't always choose for it. No, it's simple as that. We get our eyes off of it. So we say, well, can anybody? And John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, was convinced that if people could receive a second blessing from the Holy Spirit and reach a place of sinless perfection. Interestingly enough, John Wesley never thought that he made it there. <laughs> but there were some who listened to him who thought that they did, that they could actually come to a place where they wouldn't sin anymore. But this flies in the face of Scripture. Uh, in 1 John 1.8 1 John 1.10, in the middle of which is 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. Uh, John writes, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. If we say that we've stopped committing sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But then he says, and, and right after that, John says, if any of us sin, we have an advocate in heaven who is Jesus Christ the righteous. He didn't say, if any of us sin, shame on you, or if any of us sin, confess it, or do something. He said, look, if any of us sin, we have an advocate, a helper in heaven who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, and so, and we're going to get to that passage coming up pretty soon, but the, the law is certainly, this law that we have is the law of the kingdom of heaven. And the law of the kingdom of heaven is not yet established on earth. Here, hence, is the struggle. If we were in our resurrection bodies and the kingdom of heaven was here on earth with Jesus Christ sitting on David's throne, which is all prophesied to happen, we're in our resurrection bodies with no sin nature. 
Following the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a breeze. I mean, all of us love to do it every moment of every moment. I don't think we'll be sleeping. We won't need sleep in our resurrection bodies. It would be a constant, euphoric worship following of the King of Kings. It's going to be marvelous, beyond what we could think. But that's not here now, is it? Nope. (laughs) I read the news every morning. Uh, Not here yet. Uh, It's getting worse, actually. Uh, Yeah, this is so far from the kingdom of heaven, it's ridiculous. People say that, and, and the amillennialists say, well, there's the postmillennialists who say, well, Jesus isn't going to come back until the church gets its act together and by the gospel converts the earth. <laughs> yeah, that it's, it's, it's a terrible doctrine. Or the fact that there is no millennial reign or no return of Christ. That's even worse. But Jesus is coming back. Revelation 19, he conquers all. He returns and he conquers. But right now, we are citizens of heaven, righteous, justified, new creatures in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This was all promised in the new covenant. And yet we have to, and so we're under the law of the kingdom of heaven, which is the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And yet we have to live out that law in the wrong bodies. These bodies aren't made for it. They're the wrong bodies in the wrong world. So why do you think it's hard? For that very reason. So what, we're not going to talk to our Father? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? That we're not going to be in consistent, a con- constant communication with Him or consistently in communication with Him? That we're going to try and do it on our own? Right, it's like being lost in the wilderness, and you have a and there you have a cell phone in which you could call somebody. You're like, nah, I think I'll try and figure out my way home on my own. No, I don't want to call anybody. It's just plain dumb. So now we have in verse four we have a transition. So verses one through four was about the law, the Mosaic law, fulfilled by Christ who made us righteous, and so we fulfilled the law. But notice verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, this isn't the first time the Spirit is mentioned in this passage, but the first time he is mentioned is in a title, the law of the Spirit of life. That's a title to our law. But now we have the Spirit himself. We walk We're supposed to, we're designed for it, according to the Spirit. So now the transition goes from the law. So you look at it this way. Verses 1 through 4 is about the law, but now the law is fulfilled. So let's leave that behind and move on. And so now another player is introduced. So we say, all right, everything's done. Good news, right? Yes, it is good news, but is we fulfilled the law. We are righteous. We are justified. We walk by the Spirit of God. Awesome, right? Right off into the sunset. Paul says, hold on, here's another one, the flesh. Now another player is introduced to the flesh. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We might think that he's talking about believers who are 
sinning. But in the context of this passage, there he's talking about unbelievers. For those who are according to the flesh, they are according to the flesh. We're not according to the flesh anymore. It doesn't mean we don't live in it at times. It means that we are not of it. That was the old self. Back in Ephesians 4, if you remember, put aside, we put aside the old self and put on the new. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things, we could carry the verb over, set their minds in the things of the spirit. Well, what is the spirit? What are the things of the spirit? Well, we learned that just a few weeks ago in John 16, where the Spirit was given to us to show us the things of Christ. The word was proclaimed to us, the things of Christ, which if you remember, were the things of the Father. So what are the, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which are the things of Christ and the things of the Father. And then he said, and so that's what we set our mind on. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Whose life? Whose peace? Christ's life. Christ's peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Notice it can't even do it. What does the flesh do? Paul said back in chapter 7, wants the law of sin. It always does. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, what do we find out here? Here comes the flesh, and all unbelievers are under it. Us as believers are now according to the Spirit. We can and should and must set our minds on the things of the Spirit. But this flesh is still with us. We are according to the Spirit, so we set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Christ and the Father. And notice what he says here in this passage. What are they? Their life and their peace. And then he says in verse 7, the mindset on the flesh can't subject itself to the law of God. We can, because we're not of the flesh. We're of the Spirit. So we can set our mind on the things of the law of God. So what we have here is life, his life, Christ's life, mean lived, understood, known, and lived. Peace, that's inner peace. And also, blessed are the peacemakers, that we don't seek to contend with others and fight with others. We seek for peace, and we are obedient to his law. So what Paul is saying here is not about our performance at any given moment. Because do you have peace every given mo- every moment? No, none of us do. But it's about a truth concerning the creatures of God who are what they are by the incredible sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. We're made for peace. We're made for it. Whether we're there or not is a different issue, but we're made for it. If you seek peace in your heart, you will have it. He has fulfilled, Christ has fulfilled the part of the new covenant that has promised men and women who would be indwelt by the Spirit. That's what the new covenant says. I will make men and women, God said, who are indwelt by the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, I think it's 36 and repeated in Hebrews. Jeremiah 31 is repeated word for word in Hebrews chapter 8 that this 
new covenant. As Jesus said when he handed us the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for the forgiveness of sins, that what we have is the beginning of the fulfillment of the new covenant. It's the beginning of it. God never said that a covenant has to be fulfilled like all in one day. It has begun to be fulfilled. Actually, the Abrahamic covenant has begun to be fulfilled. My covenant theologian friends out there and the hyper-dispensationalists would cringe if they heard me say that. Cringe away, I say. Because it's the truth. The truth of the matter is is that it promised to Abraham that all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth, that means Jew and Gentile, would be blessed through you. How is that not starting to be? It's not yet finished. It just has begun. So Christ has fulfilled part, part, not all, of the new covenant promised to men and women who would be indwelt by the Spirit. He also said that they would be washed clean of all sin in Ezekiel. And the heart, he said also that their hearts would be made soft. Not their heads, their hearts. And a softened heart in that, that imagery of a softened heart is one of obedience. It's, it's put in contrast to the rock heart, which is kind of like the rock head. Uh, you know, the one who is obstinate. A soft heart means I want to obey God. Notice what Jesus said here. Life, peace, and obedience. Here it is in the New Testament. Life and peace in Colossians 3.3. Your life is hidden with Christ. See, where is, what is your life? It's in Him. And in John 14.27... Uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And he says right after that, not as the world gives do I give you peace. I give you my peace. The world's peace is fickle. And then, <clears throat> that's uh, First John, no, uh, John 14, 27. And then subject to the law of God, whoever keeps his word, says John in First John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. This is not this is mentioned by Christ too. He said, if you love me in John 14, you'll keep my word. See, so in our age, if we love him, which as John would say, 1 John chapter 4, we love God because he first loved us. It's just a response to God's incredible love when we understand what he's done for us, that our love for him gives us the power and the desire to keep his word. Hence, a soft heart. Obedient. How does it all work? I haven't a clue. But the Spirit is the one within us that does it. Right? All highlighted through this chapter is the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. It's all throughout. But we've moved from, look, we've fulfilled the law, and now we are those made to walk by means of the Spirit but don't forget now, you have a flesh. But even though you have a flesh, you have been made to seek the things of the Spirit. And so If you have been made to seek the things of the Spirit, go seek them. That's the point. <clears throat> now, the next section. Paul continues to encourage us in our position. He says, if you are righteous in you, the Spirit is in you. And that you have the power to overcome. And now in verses 9 through 11, still on the topic of the spirit and the flesh, 
Paul states that the spirit is more powerful than the flesh. Meaning, if you choose him. But he is. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, being God, is more powerful than the flesh. But Paul here is going to say, look, if you choose the spirit, you'll be able to control that body of yours that is the wrong body. So, hence the word control. You know, would you need to control your resurrection body? You don't have to control something that always does what you want it to. You say, control that kid. (laughs) Why? Because they're being unruly. You don't say that of someone being obedient. So, control, which is a fruit of what? The Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the ninth, last one listed. It's there to control the physical body. Now, man, this flesh is going to fight you on this. But here, hence, comes the promise. And you take it all the way through. Yes, I'm a wretched man, but there's no condemnation. I'm forgiven. I fulfilled the law through Christ. I'm righteous. I'm justified. And I've been given, I'm made, to seek the things of the Spirit. But I still have a flesh that is dead set against it and cannot fulfill the law of God. All it wants to do is fulfill the law of sin. Hence explains all of my my bad decisions. Not that I'm not responsible for them. I am. But I am uh, constantly besought on all sides by the flesh. So, he says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You see that? That's a position in. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. I say, well, wait a minute. I don't know if the Spirit of God dwells in me. What is it? I don't feel Him. And Paul's going to tackle that coming up real soon. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Him. Right? So the unbeliever doesn't have the Spirit of Christ. We do. Paul's going to tell you that the Spirit within you actually assures you that He's in you. It's unmistakable on a supernatural spiritual level. And then he says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, whether you've got, if you have a New American Standard, you have a little s, meaning human spirit. Does he mean the Holy Spirit? There's a couple of places in here in Romans 8 where it's kind of impossible to tell, which both, both of them fit in the context. But. So anyway, the spirit is alive because of righteousness, meaning you're alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, see, now that makes it clear. If it's the spirit of him, it's the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. And what this means is that, as Paul stated in Romans 6, that we the Holy Spirit is so powerful that if we choose, even though this is the wrong body, this flesh doesn't want to do anything right, but we can control it. And, and that's part of this life, this heavenly life under the law of the kingdom of heaven, that we are to control this thing. Meaning the mind as well, we're to control it all. 
Now, some would say, well, look, the Spirit is the one who does it, so you just kind of let go and let God and the Spirit does everything. And people are, why, there's a reason why they do this. There's a reason why I did it for years, because I heard this kind of teaching and I loved it. Because it's easy. <laughs> but it's wrong. There's parts of it that are correct, though, and that's why it's so appealing as well. People are always looking for an easy way to get what they want, aren't they? Get, get rich, quick schemes. How many people, you know, I'll never forget when I was a young man, uh, there was somebody, somebody like a Tony Robbins guy who's always selling a program and how you can get rich and be a better person. And he's got books and he's got workbooks and he's got these classes and everything. Uh, and then someone, I heard someone say, why doesn't he read his own book and become a billionaire? I was like, you know what? That's right. You know, like I didn't think of that. Uh, get rich. People have gotten really rich off of get rich quick schemes. Uh, how about getting? How about inventing? I say, well, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go in the workshop and invent something. You going to get it right the first time? The first ten times? No. So what do people do? They give up. I want to get it right the first try. I've seen that. That's also one of a five-year-old that I know. Temper is lost quickly. Quick promotions at work. You know, I want to be the CEO next week. And all without the work and the tenacity that all of these people need. My latest audio book is The Wright Brothers. And I put this book off. I love listening to history books. I try all these different books. And I'm like, that doesn't sound interesting to me. So what? You know, they go to a beach and invent a plane. Blah, blah. Big deal. It is, it is my favorite so far. I know, Sue, you love to read. It's uh, David McCullough. He's one of the best history writers. He just, he just died this year, by the way. Yeah. He was, he was honored at uh, um, Hillsdale College. He, spoke, he actually taught courses there and, and spoke there. But uh, this book on the Wright brothers, it's brilliant. It's, it's awesome. And when they, the first, they, they scouted the country looking for a place that had, you know, no trees and stuff and beach because they're going to land uh, hard and wind. They needed wind. And Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, was the place that they settled on. And boy, did things go wrong. Right? In the book, I'm on their second year at Kitty Hawk. There's only like a two-month, not even, a month-and-a-half window that they can try their, their machine. They don't even have an engine on it yet. It's just basically a big kite, and they're trying to learn how to fly. No one's ever done it before. Nobody's ever done it. And one thing about Wilbur and Orville is that they work, 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 work. And after the second year, they were so despondent because things went terribly wrong that on the way home... Wilbur said uh, he was going to quit on it. He said, man won't fly for a thousand years. There is no way that man can fly. And two days later, he was in his workshop again. Now, because these guys had in them this desire. Right? They get down. We all get down. Right? We all fail. We all get down. And for us, it's, more, it's better than learning how to fly because we're told that our victory is won. We're reading it right here. That Christ Jesus has done this. And that he has already made us 
to be overcomers. He's already done it. We already have everything we need right here to do this. And when we don't do it and we get despondent, which happens to be about once a week, (laughs) uh, you know, I can't. I can't quit on it. Why can't I quit on it? Why can't you quit on it? Because the Spirit's in us. And if we know the Word of God, this has to be done. It has to be done. And we will do it. So, some will say that the Holy Spirit will just do it all if you let Him. Now, on some level, will the Holy Spirit do it all? Yeah. Do we let Him do it? Yeah. But that's not the whole story, is it? You give a part of the story and then you say, well, that's it. And people just don't do anything. On some level, that statement's true, but it leaves out the very important part that our own decisions in the face of the flesh, the tenacity to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to learn the Word of God as deeply as we possibly can, you know, all of that's left out in statements like that. Uh, God is about God is an exacting judge. How about the fear of God? You know, we don't mention people don't mention that in church too much. They don't want people to get afraid. But God is exacting, and we are to fear Him. And our own decisions matter greatly. So the Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies if we're diligent to use that body, this body, for God's righteous will. That also means developing habits like you guys have of learning God's Word. That's a habit to develop. Once you're in a habit like that, even when you don't really feel like doing it, you'll go, you'll do, or you'll read and and study. And developing habits that tame the body, like prayer, study, self-discipline, training the body. As Paul said, I beat my body and make it my slave. And that's a habit-forming thing. All right. So we have the Spirit within us, and the Spirit within us, if we choose life, the promise is that the Spirit will give life even to the body that you're in, which is the wrong body for the spiritual life. So then now, in 12 through 17, and I see for the sake of time, I'm not going to get it all, but I think we'll, we'll get the brunt of this here, is that Paul now draws his conclusion. We're under obligation. Right? Verses 1 through 4, the law is fulfilled, and for us it's fulfilled through Christ Jesus. We've been made righteous, and we're justified. Then, you know, we since we're justified and now we have the Spirit, we can seek the things of the Spirit, but the flesh will war with the Spirit, as Paul says, but the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh and will even give life to your mortal body. Then he says in verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. And that means, brethren, right? That's everybody in the royal family of God. This is not just for the apostles. It's for everybody. We are under obligation, not to the spirit to live according to, but not to the flesh, sorry. (laughs) So then, brethren, I need to slow down. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. There's a lot of people interpret this as as believers will die young if they live according to the flesh. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, 
or that it's a sort of out of fellowship thing. Um, but I think here in the context, the context Paul has been talking about, this is what a believer is and what a believer is made for. This is what an unbeliever is and what an unbeliever is made for. And he said, and I think he's repeating that here. Right? You know, I could be wrong. But for if you are living according to the flesh, in other words, the unbeliever, if you're living, the unbeliever dies even the second death, right? So why would we do that? That's the, and he, he uses that argument quite a bit. We've seen it in Ephesians, that where he says, don't fellowship with those who are the sons of disobedience because you know, they are this. They don't inherit eternal life, blah, blah, blah. And he says, but you are sons of light, so then walk according to the light. I think that's what he's doing here too. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And this harkens back to, you know, and I'll say another thing about the beginning of verse 13. Whatever he means by you must die, what's very clear here is that we should not live according to the flesh. Right? Isn't that quite obvious? So, like, people get caught up in the argument, does he need spiritual death? Does he mean physical death? Does he mean lack of fellowship? Like, I used to teach it that way, like a living death, like a zombie. Uh, And I don't really agree with that so much anymore. But regardless, we get caught up all arguing on what he means by die and miss the real message here. And the real message is don't live according to the flesh because you are now in the spirit, no longer in the flesh. So this gets back to verse 11. He says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Back in verse 11, he said, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, right? he's the Spirit of resurrection, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He'll give life to your mortal bodies. And then he says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, the flesh, which is in the body, wants me to do all these deeds that are of dead things. Call it that way. And I, by the power of the Spirit, it doesn't mean I, you know, the Spirit, I, it's by the power of the Spirit if I choose to say no to the flesh, the Spirit promises to empower me to follow through on it. I, you know, I, if I think about this and I say, well, I've said no to the flesh, no to the flesh, no to the flesh. <laughs> and, and then eventually I say yes. You know, there, but I say, so the Spirit didn't empower me. Uh, that's not true. I said no until I said yes. It was, it was all on me. All on me. <laughs> right? It, it, it's a... Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a way in which, you know, you get back to that, uh, you know, the Spirit's going to do it and I don't have to struggle. It's going to be easy. You know, it's, it gets to that. That's why people love that prosperity doctrine that that guy teaches down in Houston and, and in all other places where they teach this, that, you know, everything's you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. The spiritual life will just be easy and everything will come to you and it'll be easy. And, you know, everything's easy. This does not sound easy to me. It sounds victorious to me, but it doesn't sound easy. 
Right? So if it, Jesus said you're going to overcome, that means there's an obstacle there. So if you're living by the Spirit, you put to, de- to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And that means all believers are being led by the Spirit of God. Whether he's leading you with discipline or he's leading you in a, in a better way, regardless. That's not what Paul is saying here, that all believers are led by the Spirit. We are designed to be machines, if you will, humans, who by the Spirit are led and empowered by God himself. And then he says in verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. And we'll pick it up here tomorrow because this, this kind of gets us right to the crux of it. This is the, the pinnacle. Um, what is this spirit that leads to slavery? And it is the spirit that we were born with. Uh, this is the slavery that the Bible speaks of from the fall, right from the beginning in, in Genesis 3. And it's what did God say when you would eat the fruit? He said, Adam, you, here's all the trees. You partake of them, the tree of life, partake of it. Uh, tree's good for, what, for looking. Tree's good for food, good for the body, good for the soul. It's all prosperity. You eat from that tree and you'll die. Right? And once they ate of it, they didn't die on the spot, but they would eventually die, physical death. But what do we find? When Jesus now comes back, or the Lord comes back, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what are they doing? They're hiding. Why are they hiding? They're afraid. Fear came. Uh, as John writes in 1 John 4, fear involves punishment. And that's why we fear. Under sin and death, God is going to judge and condemn. I mean, what would you be like if you thought, really thought you could lose your salvation? Wouldn't you walk on eggshells? You'd be fearful all the time. Punishment involves fear. But we haven't... Re- that was before. But what do we have now? A spirit of adoption as sons. No punishment. Sin, death, which going right back to the beginning. I don't know why I'm pointing that way, but right back to the beginning of Romans 8. Right? The law of sin and death was fulfilled by Christ. And now we fulfilled it. And so... Right, He bookends, it's called an inclusio, he bookends this section with the law at the top and the law at the bottom. Sin and death at the top and sin and death at the bottom, but deliverance at the top and deliverance at the bottom. And so we receive a spirit of, a spirit of adoption as sons of which we cry out, Abba, Father, just like our Lord did. Yeah, say it, say it out loud, man. Abba, Father, we, we cry out now as sons in a foreign land in the wrong body. We need to be. He's invisible. He's not here. 
Right? I don't feel the Holy Spirit. I don't feel the righteousness. I don't feel any of this. I have got to be in constant communication with my Father. Right? To make this, this life with this truth and these truths that I'm living out, make them the reality day by day. And every time I go in prayer to the Father, I am going to the place that is my eternal home. I'm going to heaven. Right? And lightning fast, I am going to heaven and speaking to my Father about whatever may be. All right. We'll finish this up a bit tomorrow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful chapter in Romans and for the truths that it presents to us that are just astounding. We are humbled before you, Father, and thank you so much for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by which we can execute this and be in prayer with you day in and day out to get confirmation, to get assurance, to get insight into your word, and also get power and just to know that you're there. In many ways that prayer is used. We thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Uh, Romans 8 is just...